for years, I have followed and tried to read behind as much as I could and when I can, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I remember when he first came onto the scene when I was a young man, and I began hearing about this Russian dissident, this Christian, and how he had been persecuted and uh, how God had changed a bitter man into a, a godly man. And then his speeches shook the nation, actually shook our nation. But he was speaking to the graduating class at Harvard University, and I think this is up on the screen for you to follow along with me. He said, Harvard's motto is veritas, or Latin for truth. Many of you have already found out, and others will find out in the course of their lives, that truth eludes us if we do not concentrate with total attention on its pursuit. And even while it eludes us, speaking of the truth, the illusion still lingers of knowing it and leads to many understandings. Now, that's an important phrase. The illusion of knowing it leads to many misunderstandings. And also, truth is seldom pleasant. It is almost invariably bitter. And tonight, as we studied this chapter, there are some sweet truths and there are some bitter truths. And as we come to the end of it, I think you'll see why I've pointed out this quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And if you've never read that speech, then I would suggest you read it. As a matter of fact, for a long time, Solzhenitsyn was the darling. He was loved and adored by the media, the press, even liberal universities like Harvard University. But as he began to speak more and more to the own personal evils of America and what was happening in America, those who adored him suddenly turned upon him. It's always okay to point out somebody else's sin. It's always okay to point out somebody else's failures. It's always okay to point out somebody else's mistakes, but don't you dare point to mine. And isn't that true of a lot of us in how we deal with and how we process truth? We're in Revelation chapter 10 tonight, and we've kind of done a review since I've come back of where we went and what all we've studied so far, but we're now at that point where the great tribulation we're in the middle of that great tribulation, those trumpets, the seals that we've been looking out. We're seeing God's revelation of judgment upon evil, and we're seeing that God is going to bring his own people to be with him forevermore. There are times when I sit down and I look at a book of, Bible, of the Bible after I've read it and reread it and reread it and reread it, and though I've read many introductions and I've read many outlines and I've read the reasons for the writing of the letter, who wrote the letter, who it was written to, the history, the context, where it fits into the rest of the Bible, sometimes I'll just sit down and I'll go, okay, knowing all of that that I've spent my life studying in this sacred book, I ask myself, all right, what's going on here? How would I put this in my own words? And first of all, I would say to you, what I think that John is saying, and this is kind of introductory, it's not in your outline, you can write it down if you want. John is saying to the church, as we look to those seven letters, we all need correction. We all need to correct our courses. I've told you before about learning how to sell with a friend of mine and how he taught me about tacking and how you don't just sell in a straight line, but you can even sell against the wind and still get to where you're going by zigzagging, so to speak. But one of the things that John is saying is the end is coming. The second thing that I think he's saying, and just writing it down in my own, my, my own words, is be prepared. 
be prepared. No man knows the hour. No man knows the time. We don't know when the rapture of the church is going to happen, but we know one day there will be a catching away, to use the, the word parousia, that there will be a catching away of the saints, that those who have died in Christ will rise to meet him in the air, and then we which are alive and remain according to this word of God, we will be called up. We don't know when that time is, but we need to be prepared. The time to be prepared is not when the flood's coming. The time to be prepared is, 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 is not uh, when uh, you see your, your, your life uh, beginning to fail, but you prepare long in advance, whether it's with flood insurance or life insurance or health insurance. There are many people suffering today because they were underinsured either medically or they were underinsured uh, uh, with their automobiles or with their houses. In some catastrophe happens and they're not prepared to absorb the shock of it. So God is saying, be prepared to the church. And over and over, he warns them as what's going to happen if they don't take the necessary action that he's recommending. And then thirdly in Revelation, he's saying, be encouraged. Be encouraged because God is in control and he knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and we are secure eternally in Christ Jesus. Can you say amen to that? We are secure in Christ. However, in the Revelation, what we see is the bitter news that sometimes people don't like to deal with. It's the message of false prophets that everything will be well. Peace, peace, peace when there is no peace is what Jesus warned us of false prophets saying. It's the kind of false prophets that we see in the Old Testament that when the nation of Israel had descended into sin and the prophets kept saying everything's going to be okay and it was because they were participating in the sin rather than speaking the word of God. But when they spoke the word of God, those true prophets of God would speak the word of God about judgment was coming. The world, the false prophets, and even the kings would turn upon them. And here in the Revelation, it's no different. Believers experience protection eternally while they experience persecution. And many of those believers who died and gave their lives for Jesus Christ so that you and I could be here tonight, they are with Jesus tonight. They're the overcomers, but they experience protection. The fact that you may die or I may die in the cause of Christ doesn't mean that God did not protect us. And that's important to know. I used the illustration the last time I was speaking on this. Two weeks ago, I used the illustration about a missionary from Georgia and how he gave his life ministering in the Congo, and they tied his hands and feet together and threw him to the cro crocodiles. And I grew up all my life hearing that story, knowing that story, going to the town where he pastored at later to pray at that church where he had been a pastor in a little small town in Georgia. Secondly is that the unbelievers that you see, they will experience the wrath of God. We looked at this last week at the closing of chapter 9. They will experience the wrath of God or judgment because of their unrepented hearts. And we're seeing already the manifestation of Satan, but we are about to see as we continue going, we're about to get into the very heart of the action as we look at the beast and the false prophets. And they're going to cause a lot of destruction in the book of Revelation, but they are doomed. They are doomed. Now, all of that, I think, is necessary for setting this up tonight because this is such an unreal chapter. When I read this chapter, the first image it comes, and please don't think I'm being sacrilegious because I'm not. The first image that comes to my mind is, do you remember the old Jolly Green Giant commercials, you know, where the big giant would be standing there and he would go, okay, some of you watched the same television I did. But do it with a little more passion. Ho, 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 in the valley 
of the Jolly Green Giant. That's what I think of. Because we're about to look upon a mighty angel. And this angel emphasizes the holiness and the greatness of God. He rules all that is. Not the angel, but God. This is an angel. This is not the pre-incarnate Christ, or this is not Christ after the resurrection. As some have tried to say, this is an angel, but it's a mighty angel. There are ranks of angels. When I first became a believer, when I first put my faith in Jesus Christ, I can remember there were times when I would be driving along through western Georgia up what we called Pine Mountain. And I would look up in the skies and I would try to imagine what lie beyond, what lay beyond. I, I knew all about astronomy. I knew all about that. But I would try to imagine heaven and the greatness of God. And sometimes I would lay in a field or I would lay in a forest. And I, sometimes I can see it now at the back of our property, on the back of one of our fields. I would lay down under a tree by a fence post and I would just look up in the heavens and I would pray and I would worship and I would try to imagine how big is our God and how great is our God. Thomas Aquinas, when he wrote that, what we call the, the Summa Theologica, he, it just is a magnificent piece of literature. But after he had already written tens of thousands of articles in this, and it's a masterpiece, he's in worship one day. And when he's in worship one day, he has this tremendous experience with God where suddenly it's like the Holy Spirit begins to minister to Aquinas, and he stops writing. If you've ever tried to tackle that or even portions of it in literature in college, you know that Aquinas stopped writing. It's an incomplete book. And his secretary, Reginald, tried to get him to finish and he told Reginald, he says, Reginald, everything I have ever said, everything I have written is straw compared to what I learned in one moment of worship before God. God is bigger than anything you can imagine tonight. And so when you hear a preacher or another Christian say to you, your God is too small, it may be because you are not leaning into your faith, our God is greater. And if we fail to trust him for the little things in life, like sicknesses or job losses or health reversals, how would we ever think to endure the kind of persecution that the early church endured? I see people get mad at God and say, I'm not going to serve him anymore because something bad happened in their life, but it is nothing compared to what the early Christians experienced or even what Christians in Northern Africa and the Middle East and parts of Asia are experiencing today as their children are sold into slavery. We watched and, and rescued Becky and I were part of this, of, of getting hundreds and hundreds of children out of Peru as they would take the pastors of our churches, the Assemblies of God churches, over 85 of them, and slit their throats because of that. How would we think to stand up when we complain about the material things in life? Sometimes you need to get a vision. There is more than this life. This life will soon be over, and we shall spend an eternity with Christ. And this angel says something to me about the greatness of God. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Circle the, the, the two phrases, his face and his feet. Circle those two phrases, if you would. Whenever you see the cloud 
you need to pay attention. Whenever you see the rainbow, pay attention. But what I want you to see, first of all, John is no longer in heaven. So far, all the visions that we've been seeing that John was having, John was in heaven seeing these. But suddenly now he's back upon the earth. He's no longer in the spirit, caught up like he was, seeing these things of the revelation. He is up on the earth. The cloud symbolizes the glory of God. You've heard me mention the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God always manifested God always manifested his glory in a cloud, and the rainbow symbolizes the covenant crown. It doesn't symbolize the rainbow warriors from Hawaii, from the University of Hawaii, but it symbolizes the covenant. God made a covenant with mankind after the flood of Noah. He would not destroy the earth by a flood anymore, but Jesus made a new covenant with us. Can you say amen to that? And so this angel stands there, and his feet, and this is where I see the jolly green giant. The Bible tells us that he's got one feet on the land and one feet on the sea. That's going to be very important later in the story because you'll notice there'll be a false beast that comes up out of the sea. There'll be a false prophet that comes up from the land. You're seeing the sovereignty of God manifested here. And this one verse is very key in the transition because chapter 10 is like an interlude. You know, in the book of Psalms where you read the little word Selah, Selah means pause. Think about it. You're at this moment where there's this interlude that's happening And there are two things that I think we have to ask ourselves here. One, you are seeing the manifestation of a holy God. You're seeing the manifestation of a just God. But you're used to hearing from the apostle John. John is known as the apostle of love. John is known for, what's his most famous verse? John 3, for God so loved the world. His first epistle, first epistle of John, those three epistles, he writes with such deep love. Suddenly, John is writing about the holiness of God because the love of God and the faithfulness of God comes from the holiness of God. You cannot have a loving God. You cannot have a faithful God unless you have a just God. And that's important to understand. If you don't believe it, if you raise children and you had to decide something between the two of them, if you didn't decide justly, they would remember it. They probably still remember that you didn't decide justly. And probably you remember if your parents didn't decide justly. Secondly, if you get harmed or somebody offends you or breaks the law and hurts you in any way, you want justice from the court. You don't want somebody just to look over it. Love and faithfulness proceeds from the very holiness of God. God is perfect in every way. And what we're about, what we just saw in chapter 9 and what we're seeing in chapter 10 is God's patience. But you're about to hear God say, time is up. You're about to hear God say, time is up. I've often quoted, I don't know how many times to you, from my favorite set of children's books, and every adult ought to read them, the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's been a year when Lucy returns back to Aslan in the land of Narnia, and everything has changed. They're lost, and she keeps wanting to find Aslan. And finally, she sees Aslan in a thicket, and she runs to him. And let me just read to you from the story. Speaking of Aslan, the lion, the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and touched her nose with his tongue. Her warm breath came all around her. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. 
Not because you are, I'm not, but each year you grow, you will find me bigger. Aslan figures in Lewis's stories as the Christ figure. And when I read that the first time, it just kind of leapt out at me, and it's what I've taught my children over the years. The more you grow in Christ, the bigger God becomes. The more mature you become in Christ, the bigger God becomes. It is the immature people that turn their backs and say, I'm not going to serve him. Some people grow more in two years as a follower of Jesus, and some people do for 20 years. Those people who don't grow for 20 years, their favorite old song is, I'm in the way, and brother, you need to get out of the way and let other people grow. And that's the point of the issue here is that God is saying he's a holy God. The scroll that he's holding represents the revelation. It represents this book that we're reading. Everything that we're reading here, this represents the whole book of Revelation. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened, and he stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. We've just talked about that, so let me keep going, because what I want to call your attention to here is the scroll, the small scroll. The fact that it's a small scroll doesn't mean it's unimportant. The fact that it's a small scroll doesn't mean that it's not as important as, as other things. It's just like some people tend to think because we call the prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah the major prophets, and Micah and Obadiah and Habakkuk, we call those the minor prophets, and maybe they're not as important. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the length, the content of the book, and those are all very short books. What's he saying here? First of all, the word must be internalized or digested. The Word must be internalized. It doesn't do you any good to have a Bible on your shelf if you don't read it. It really will do you some good to read the Bible if you doubt it. It will do you a little better good if you trust it. But you will get the most from the Bible when you commit your heart to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I trust you. And then the Holy Spirit who lives in you will help you understand the Word of God. One of the reasons so many people scoff at the Word of God is because they choose not to believe in the Lord, or they choose to pick the parts of the Bible they want to believe and reject the parts of the Bible they don't want to believe. We can't be masters of the Bible. We have to be mastered by the Bible. And that's an important key. That's what we call internalizing or digesting. Look at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 10. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel. Can you imagine how frightening that must have been to walk up to that mighty angel? I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. And I'll talk to you more about that a little later in the message. Then I was told you must prophesy against many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Look at verse 11. Writing a book, this is the voice that was speaking to John, writing a book, everything you see, and send it to the seven churches. We've already dealt with that. But there's a book. This is a revelation, the apocalypse. We've talked about what apocalyptic literature is and how it differs. Look at chapter 22 and verse 7. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. And for the sake of time, we'll go on. You can read those later. And then Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18, and I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, we're talking about the Revelation. Now, lest you think I'm stretching this point, it's interesting historically to go back and see how many books, how many manuscripts, 
How many theses have been written? And if you come forward in time a little bit to where we have movies and television, how many productions have been made about the book of Revelation? Our world just cannot escape. This book is powerful for reasons that we've already looked at in this series of messages that we've been in, this book is powerful. And one of the reasons, if you'll continue looking at this passage with me from uh, verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 18, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and the holy city that are described in this book. There's an awesome warning about treating this book with the reverence and the respect that it deserves is the Word of God. And we'll deal with this much more as we get to the end of Revelation, but go all the way back to chapter 1 where we're told there is a blessing guaranteed to us if we read the book, if we listen to the book, and if we apply the book to our lives. But then we are told, don't treat this book cavalierly. I have a good friend. I, I don't subscribe to this, but I have a good friend who loves the Lord but because of this verse, he will never even lay his Bible on the floor. If he's sitting in his chair reading his book, he says, I just cannot do it. I don't think that's at all what this is saying. I think it's saying respect, honor, reverence, but don't just talk about the truth. Don't just be curious about it. Learn it and apply it to your lives. Something happens after this angel reveals himself and shows himself. There are seven thunders. There are seven thunders that happen, and these are not thunders of molecules traveling across like we hear thunder today. The seven thunders are a mystery. The seven thunders are a mystery. Remember the number seven, we've talked about the importance of numbers in this book, is the number of God. These, I believe, now I could be mistaken here because they're a mystery. As a matter of fact, John is told not to even write them down, but I will tell you what I think they are, but this is, remember when we talked about interpretation, and we talked about speculation. Remember we talked about, this is speculation on my part. I think they're the unrevealed judgments of God yet to come. I think there are things that God has just chosen not to say, and I'll try to make, uh, not to reveal to us yet, and I'll try to break that out a little more as we go. God has not chosen to reveal to us everything that's going to happen in the end times, and that's what makes it so dangerous to me when I see prophecy teachers on television, when I see people who don't even believe in the Bible trying to interpret the revelation, and they sit there with their scholarly degrees, and I'm not being uh, sarcastic, but when they speak sarcastically of people of faith and challenge and question them because they have all these degrees, and they're not even followers of Jesus Christ, and they lean upon their history degree, or they lean upon their archaeological degree, or they lean upon their Semitic languages degrees, and yet they are not even followers of Jesus Christ. There is a blindness that happens in our world. There's mysteries yet to be revealed. There are things that we won't know until we get to heaven. He gave a great shout in verse 3. The, this is the angel. He gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. Now, just imagine, you know, when you see, and, and I hope I'm not taking anything away, but it's the only mental image I could get was the jolly green giant, unless you wanted to think of some fairy tale giant. But that voice echoing in the valley of the giant, and you hear the echo behind it or the reverb that they use to make it sound like an echo. 
Some, this angel speaks, and it's the shout like the roar of a lion. And the lion, I don't know if you've ever been in the parts of Africa where lions roam. I have. And when you hear one roar at night, it will turn your blood to ice. It will turn your blood to ice. When you hear that animal roar, and he's closer than you think he ought to be, or you're closer to him than you think you ought to be, and you don't want to move. So you, you've got this great, terrifying angel. You've got this voice like a roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. Whatever they said, John understood it. Now, this is important. But I heard a voice from heaven. It, and every time you hear that voice from heaven, it's the Lord Jesus so far that we've seen. It's the Lord Jesus speaking. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Again, I'm speculating a little bit here, okay? And, and, and when I tell you that, don't take this to the bank. Don't even say that's how it's going to happen. I'm just speculating. I I think, this, and I'll get to the, why I believe we can do this as long as we don't claim it to be truth. Remember what Solzhenitsyn said, the illusion of thinking you've got the truth. The only truth is the Word of God once revealed. Can you say amen to that? that that's where we hang at. I think it's probably an introduction to those strange two people we're going to meet in chapter 11. And I will give power to my two, and this is in chapter 11, verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap, and they will prophesy during those 1260 days. These are two men that will be killed for their preaching, and when they, when they die, a few days later, God will resurrect them again to the shock and the awe of everyone. Now, again, unless you say, just because I don't know who all I'm speaking to tonight, and because I know this goes out over the internet, I, let me tell you this. The raising of the dead is not unheard of in our day. There are countries where people have been raised from the dead and attested to people that have been dead several days, especially in Asia or Africa, and the churches continue to pray and life has entered back into them even after corruption has begun to take place in their bodies. So don't ever underestimate God. The fact that we don't see it in America doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. One of the th reasons is we have access to so much health care that we're not, and so much finances and wealth, we're not forced to depend upon our faith like many people in other countries have to do. And um, it's why at times I've hesitated to even go speak to some of those groups because they've had to walk paths I've never had to walk. <sighs> what I think that is important to get here is not to speculate, but to pray sincerely. If God, now this is an important point, if try to follow along with me. If God, listen, if God did not want us to know what was said, why did he leave this for us to read about? It's kind of like, well, if you don't want me to know, don't even tell me anything about it, because if you tell me something, I'm going to get curious. Has anybody ever told you something and you just got curious? And when I'm studying, just to give you an example, when I'm studying, when I mean when I am really studying and working and writing, I have to shut off the internet. I have to shut off all the hyperlinks to my resources and my computer because inquiring minds want to know. I'll see a hyperlink and I want to click it and want to go there and see. But I'll never get done if I don't because there's just so much to learn. 
there is a reason this has been left here. Not that we know everything, but for us to know that we don't know everything, even with the Scripture. But what is important that I take away from this is that when I testify about Jesus, God will be speaking to people through my life. Whenever I tell somebody about Jesus, whenever I witness to Jesus, God is speaking through me to other people. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, I fell down at his feet to worship him. He's talking about an angel. He says, but no, don't worship me. I'm a servant of God just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God for the essence of prophecy is to what? Give a clear witness for Jesus. So when you and I are talking to others about Jesus, we're testifying God's using us to talk to them, to speak to them. Number two, the secret things belong to God. There are some things that are not yet ours to know. The secret things belong to God. The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, I was called up to paradise, and I heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 9, now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. Okay, you got those verses. Now look at me for just a second. These verses do not mean that God doesn't want us to study, to question, to inquire, to learn. That's the reason as long as I say I'm speculating, I don't have any fear of saying, I think this is what it may mean. What do you think? I think this is what may be going on right here. But not to claim it as truth because it's clearly said, don't write it down. But there's a reason he left it there. There's a reason he left a clue there. Was it Captain James McPherson? No, Dutton. In Vietnam? when he was shot down in 1963, and he was able, when he had to give that famous speech televised about, you know, uh, America, and he did with his eyes Morse code, and he did with, blinked with his eyes the word torture. Does anybody remember that? You know, you can Google that. He, he, he blinked the word torture to let them know that he and his men were being tortured in Vietnam, in, in North Vietnam. There is code but it is not code that you and I cannot understand. That's the reason I've said over and over, you can understand this book. But now we're making a shift where we're getting into some areas where I think I've done a good job preparing you for, where people are going to have differing views about the tribulation and about how it's all going to end out. And that's okay. I'm a friend of anybody that believes that Jesus Christ is going to come back and receive the church, okay? If you want to go through the tribulation, that's fine. If you want to go through half of it, that's fine. I, I'm a friend of anybody that believes that. I'm a friend of anybody that believes that, you know, we're going to go through the tribulation, and then Jesus is going to come, I mean, and we're going to go through uh, everything, and then Jesus is going to come, and then he's going to, I'm a friend as long as you believe Jesus is coming again, Okay? It's when you start denying the core principles of this. But now it's my job as an expositor, as a preacher of the Word, to give you to the best of my ability what I think is being said. 
You see, the Bible says intelligent people are always ready to learn and their ears are open for knowledge. We need to be ready to learn. We need to be careful about what our sources of knowledge are. It's God's privilege to conceal things and the king's privilege to discover them. That has been a guiding principle in my life. Lord, help me to understand. Help me to understand your key for downriver. Help me to understand your key to raising children. Help me to understand with all of my relationships. There are things God conceals, but you and I prayerfully and, and in the Word seek those things out. Paul goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 4, and he says, he's telling young Pastor Timothy, he says, don't let the congregation, don't let them waste their times in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things lead only to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. And I think that has to be the clinching argument right there. That when you're looking at things that you can't be sure of, like, why did God tell us this? If he said, don't write it down, I think what we have to look at is, how is this left there? Because God wants to build my faith. God wants to strengthen my faith. God wants to encourage my faith. And God especially wanted to encourage the faith of those early Christians that were going through such persecution when they read the Revelation. So that's where... I've taken a long path to get to because when you come to controversial points like this one in Revelation, you just can't ignore it. You can, but then you don't profit from it. You go, why is it there? What is God trying to say? Here are some things that I pull away from all this. When my times are tough, I will remember that God's powerful angel army is with me. When my times are tough, Elijah prayed for his servant, opened up his eyes, and he said, Master... There's an army everywhere. They that are for us are more than they would be against us. I mean, there are angels in this room tonight. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, our Savior says, Don't you look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you, in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, and I think this is an important word because we live in an age where there's a lot of interest. Most Americans, the overwhelming majority of Americans believe in angels. But that doesn't mean they believe in the biblical concept of angels because many of them have very foreign concepts to what angels are that are, ex- that are extraneous to what the Bible says. The Bible tells us angels are only, say that with me, are only, say it again, are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. And that doesn't mean we demean them. That doesn't mean we dishonor them. That means we are grateful for them, but we don't do what demonic gods want us to do. We don't worship them, okay? And we don't look for angels. We look for Jesus, okay? We don't bear witness to angels. We bear witness to Jesus, and that's the reason that we acknowledge them. I'll teach on them at the turn of the year after we finish Revelation, Um, but it's very important to understand I'm glad they're there. We need them there. I want them there. I pray for them to guard over your family and my family as well. The fourth thing I take away from this, God is saying time is up. Remember, there is an angel, a giant angel, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. His voice sounds like the roaring of a lion. And I'll say it again, if you've never heard that at night, 
If you've never heard that on a savannah, if you've never heard that sound, then it's awfully hard to let that get into your spirit, that roaring of a lion that will just curdle your blood. This angel swore an oath in the name of him who lives. This is Revelation 10, verse 6 and 7. He swore an oath in the name of him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay. I think this is like the midpoint of the tribulation. And when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. Now, we're looking at Ephesians. The plan of God was Jesus. The plan of God was the church in Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. But now the plan of God for the world, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. There comes a time, there will come a time where God will say enough. For millennia, God has been calling to a world in love and mercy and kindness and grace. God sent his son Christ to die for our sins. And yet people think nothing of going Jesus Christ and using his precious name in vain. They think nothing of taking and putting on television for our children to hear. Blasphemies taking the name of God. They laugh and they scoff. It seems like the more merciful God is and the long, more long-suffering God is, the not more, the, we're not seeing more people turn to him. We're seeing more people become more recalcitrant in their unbelief. That has not always been true. It's why those of you who meet with me on prayer on Saturday nights, we are praying for revival. We're beseeching God to open up the heavens and send his spirit that one more time God will revive his church in the midst of these days, revive his people like he's done in times past in Britain, in the United States, and in parts of Europe. The Reformation, that God would revive his people one more time and the fear of the Lord would come upon our communities, that people would come to know Jesus Christ because the time is coming where God will say enough. And that's a part of the message. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, is revealed, the one who brings destruction. All of this from, from chapter 10 to what we're going to be reading now in the second half of Revelation, or the heart of Revelation, is fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Michael, the archangel who stands guard over your nation, will arise and there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. That's awfully hard for me to wrap my head around. Awfully hard for me to wrap my head around. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. And then number five, the scroll's message, the revelation of Jesus, is exhilarating and it's terrifying at the same time. It's exhilarating. I'm telling you, sometimes when I'm in prayer and I sense the Holy Spirit speak to me, I, I just can't tell you the joy of being that close to God and, and sensing and hearing his voice. But sometimes the message that he gives you to preach or to teach, it's a terrifying message. It's a depressing message. The voice from heaven spoke to me again and said, go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I, I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Now notice, yes, take it 
and eat it. Remember, that's what was said to Ezekiel as well. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. Now, a better word there would be bitter. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn bitter in your stomach. What he's saying is the prophet is going to enjoy the word of being close to God, but when he realizes what the message is, it's a bitter message to preach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel. I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Boy, that's hard. That's hard. David Wilkerson, as long as he was reaching drug addicts, building Teen Challenge Centers, he was the darling again of American media, television. But when he began to preach against the sins of America and what was producing so much of the heartache we saw on our streets, suddenly they turned on him like vicious wolves. People don't mind if you're doing something they think improves the security of a city, the welfare of the city, but if you start preaching about the sin of the city, that's another story. It's a fundamental part of what we believe. And yet, those of us who love the Lord, we can't get enough of his word. When I discovered your words, I devoured them. This is Jeremiah 15. They are my joy and my heart's delight. I bear your name, O Lord God of heaven's armies. I never joined the people in their merry feast. I sat alone because your hand was upon me. I was filled with indignation at their sins. He's not saying that he despised the sinners. He's not saying he hated the sinners. It was the sin that was destroying them. And the things that people want to justify because it's their right or their privilege, it's the very thing that they, that's destroying them. Just as you would try to protect your child from chemicals or you would try to protect your child from cigarettes or alcohol because you know what it would do. When Becky and I returned home, the first article I saw in the Down River News and Herald was a heartbreaking article. Nobody should eat the fish coming out of the Huron River. And we'd all been talking about how well the Huron River was doing and how the environment was cleaning up. Right down Peter's Road next to, I get mixed up when I'm in here, but right down the Peter's Road next door to us is the second most polluted site in the state of Michigan. Right down the road. We, we, we've lands right over here in Trenton that can't be sold because they're brownfields. Maybe people didn't know what they were doing then, but we now know that the company who dumped those chemicals in the Huron River, they knew what they were doing and what it does to affect. You see, it's righteousness that exalts a nation. It's sin that destroys a nation. It's interesting to me that we are in those days where the Scripture just prophesied and said, those days will come where what is right will be called wrong and what is wrong will be called right. God's word will always be sweet to his people. God's word will always be sweet. His people will want his word. They're more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. But God's word will be bitter when it reveals the judgment of God and we are responsible to share that. You must daily eat the Word. You must daily spend time in the Word. If you don't digest it daily, if you don't consume it, you won't understand it. 
If you don't consume it, you won't know how to apply it. It's the reason that we teach so often here about hearing the Word, reading the Word, studying the Word, meditating upon the Word, and applying the Word. Number six, and I've got to close. I'm way out of time, and I want to give you the growth work. God's Word is for all people everywhere at all times. The revelation is for all people everywhere at all times. I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Numbers of years ago, long before I moved to Michigan, our offices were next to Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. Mercer has the largest collection of Civil War writings and journals of a university in America. They also have a large collection of the sermons of black preachers prior to the Civil War. And there were many days when I was in town and I didn't have to be anywhere, I would just go over to the library and, and I would just read. It was amazing to me to read some of the sermons by black pastors who were enslaved. It was amazing to me to hear them tell their people living in slavery, when the day, when the night seems darkest, daylight is coming. When hope seems lost, deliverance is coming. And those African Methodist Episcopal churches survived because even though they were persecuted and tortured and enslaved, Mothers watched their children ripped away from them and sold off. In my hometown, I can take you, there's a big memorial built there where families were divided up and slaves were sold that came from around the world. It's a bitter scar in my hometown. It's why one of the reasons I disagree with people who want to tear down all these statues, we never need to forget what happened there. We never need to forget But what stands out to me was how strong the church was. What stands out to me is how many of those black leaders were committed followers of Jesus Christ. And so tonight, I want to say to you, it's not always the people in power that have the right message. I'm a proud Southerner. I'm thankful for my family and my roots there. But it wasn't the Presbyterians and the Southern Baptists who were defending slavery that were right. It was those persecuted black preachers and pastors in those Methodist Episcopal churches who preached, there's a day of deliverance coming. God's word is for all people and at all times. And the United States' most bloody and costly war was fault, I believe, is God's judgment upon our country forever allowing that. So what do we do with all of this? Revelation 10 is a heavy chapter. But trust me, we're about to get just a little bit heavier as we go through. One is keep a proper perspective like those African preachers did. Keep a proper perspective. Number two, God has revealed to you and I all we need to know to live victoriously Him. The fact that I don't know what those seven thunders said, the fact that I speculate on that, doesn't mean that I don't have enough knowledge to know what I need to do. I've often said to people, and I don't mean it mocking, when people ask me, where did Cain get his wife from? It must have been a sister. I don't know, you know. 
I don't worry about where Cain got his wife from. I worry more about forgiving my enemies and blessing those who do spitefully to, against me. You know, that's, it's those things. So not worrying about what was in that, but it does help me to understand it's okay to seek out knowledge. But don't speculate, but remember interpretation and application. I won't build anything upon why I think why I think the seven thunders were about the judgments of God. I'll just simply go, there's a reason you left that there for me. I'm going to keep looking at it, but that's not what you want me to build upon. You want me to build upon interpretation and application. Can you say amen to that? Do you understand why I'm saying that? Because it's those little things as we go through the book that trip people up with Revelation. Number four, pray with faith for the coming of Christ. There's something wrong that we don't pray for the coming of the Lord. There's something wrong when we don't long for the coming of the Lord. It's the reason the early church was constantly saying, Maranatha, 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 Maranatha. It meant, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Long for the coming of the Lord. The people that are longing for His coming are the people that are going to be prepared for Him. When I was taking New Testament Greek, I will never forget Arthur Glandon, who was teaching me. He told the class that day, one day, as we were talking about some of these issues of interpretation and language, he said, gentlemen, I was in an all-male class, he says, gentlemen, he said, I've lived long enough to know there are going to be some people that are going to wake up and be surprised that they're in heaven. And there are going to be some people that wake up and surprise they're in hell. He said, and the people that wake up and surprise that they were in heaven, they were the people that somehow or another legalist told them they weren't good enough, they weren't righteous enough, they weren't holy enough. What gets you into heaven is not how good you are, it's your faith in Jesus Christ. And the people that wake up in hell are the people who trusted in their righteousness and in their good works. I'm a good person, and that's why they ought to be in heaven. Nobody will be there except for those who trust in and lean upon the blood of Jesus, which says, be sold out to Jesus. Be sold out to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, and let's pray before you go home tonight. Jesus, one more time, we pray for the Anderson family as they're the bedside of his father tonight. God, we pray that you will pull them through this and all of these fluids, that his organs will begin to function again. God, that you will give to Dave and his mother and Allison and the rest of the family the peace of God that passes understanding and the knowledge that even before we all go to our beds tonight, we're going to one more time lift them up in prayer. Secondly, Lord Jesus, we come to you this evening and we're asking you that, God, you will help us to remember this simple message on an angel, a giant angel. He's just a creation of God. And yet, so immense and massive, how great our God must be. And the more we grow, the bigger you will become. The Lord, the more mature we become in you, the bigger you will become to us. So, Lord, if somehow or another you're small in our eyes, help us to repent of our lukewarmness and to pursue you with faith, hope, and love until, God, we know that we know that we know our God reigns. And then finally tonight, Lord, I pray help us to digest, internalize the Word of God. 
it'll be sweet to us, but help us whether it's sweet or whether it's bitter to others. God, to speak your word in truth and in love to all we meet. For it's in Christ's name I pray. And everyone said amen and amen and amen. God bless you. Good night. If you got any questions, I'll be happy to try and answer them.